All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. This is your host, Jay Taylor. I'm talking to you here from New York City on the 6th day of March, 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you, that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and uh, you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office here in New York City, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I would also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Uh, Chen and I speak frequently. We uh, share some investment ideas, uh, but he has been a marvelous stock picker. Uh, I'm not fully aware of all that Chen does, but I do know that he took $5,400 of, of an IRA account a long time ago, uh, took 5400 and in 10 years turned it into $2.5 million. I wished I have, had done as well, uh, but I know Chen invests other, uh, in other accounts as well, but that's the one. There was no, no leverage there, no extra money going in, no money coming out, so it was easy to track, and uh, the performance was very remarkable, but he is a very brilliant investor who finds novel ways and novel opportunities, and so we'll be talking to Chen from time to time. On this show, I want to do it more often if possible because, uh, well, I've profited too some from his ideas and would like to share them with you. Uh, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, encourage you to send your questions, criticisms, and praises along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I'd also like to let you know that I am more actively tweeting out my own thoughts about the markets and uh, the economy, uh, politics to a certain extent as well. Uh, and if you'd like to follow me, you can do so on Twitter. Uh, my handle is jtaylormedia, J-A-Y Taylor Media. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, RN Resources, Bonterra Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, Genesis Metals, New Range Gold Corp., uh, New Range Gold Corp., Northern Empire, Novo Resources, and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I've titled today's show, Our Bankrupt Empire, What Will It Mean for the Dollar and Gold? David Stockman, Dan Oliver, and Michael Oliver are today's guests. Today, my main guest is Dan Oliver, who will be with me uh, during the second half of the show. Now, with the Tea Party all but gone from Washington, there is no one left to remind Americans that governments everywhere are living a lie, namely... The lie told by John Maynard Keynes many decades ago that governments and central banks can create wealth by printing money. My friend Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute and formerly Ron Paul's chief of staff has reminded me that in politics, perception is reality. 
Trey Gowdy said much the same thing when he noted that politicians care more about winning elections than telling the truth to the American people. So he is exiting the Washington liar's den when his term ends in Congress. But both Deist and Gowdy know that ultimately the laws of nature will prevail against human lies, and both Dan Oliver and David Stockman will share their views on the terrible price not only Americans are going to be paying, but people around the world are going to be paying for the persistent fairy tales believed in and operated on and told by John Maynard Keynes and his disciples with PhDs behind their names. Well, we've been told and fed the propaganda year after year that we can have something for nothing. The big lie that the democratic governments have been telling their voters is that they can defy the laws of economics. In other words, they, have, they can perform supernatural miracles. The Keynesians have told people that wealth can be created by way of the printing press. What they didn't tell voters is that every dollar that is printed also uh, has actually no value at all, but uh, only has debt behind it. And when the system becomes so over-indebted as it is now, it is living on life support and on borrowed time. Part of the uh, reason Nixon bastardized the U.S. dollar in 1971 by removing gold from it and replacing it with debt was so that the U.S. empire could expand with a goal of dominating the world by force. And that is most certainly what it has been doing. But in the process, America is now, in fact, staring bankruptcy in the face. And uh, in our second segment today, a very brief segment, David Stockman will share some of his thoughts about how the military-industrial complex has played a major role in creating the very difficult times that lie ahead for our country and for the American people and the people of the Western world. Dan Oliver will help us focus on the causes of our bankrupt Western world and speculate on the end game for the empire, including the fate of the dollar and what that is likely to mean for gold and other tangible assets. But right now, we move from the theoretical to the directly immediate reality of the markets. So we turn to Michael Oliver for his latest updates on the markets that are most important to us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Really good to have you back, and it's always good to remind our listeners that your website is olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. Well, Michael, you know, after commercial, after a first commercial break in a few minutes, uh, David Stockman will be with us. And since I've heard what he has to say, I know what he's going to say. It is a pre-recorded segment. He shares some thoughts about the U.S. deficit and the debt markets and how that will bring about a disaster uh, in the equity markets. And you've suggested that uh, in the past, and uh, when we've had you here on this show, that there will come a point in time when interest rates rise that you think the equity markets will finally break down. Now, we did see a bit of nervousness here in the recent past, and the Dow lost quite a bit of uh, ground, and the S&P, all the equities were hit pretty hard, but they seem to have bounced back. So the question for you is, should equity bulls feel better now? Um, is it onward and upward now, especially since interest rates seem to have stabilized as well? Well, uh, there's two equity markets. Uh, we suggested going long uh, fully um, stocks back in January of 2017, emerging market stocks. Uh-huh. Uh, represented by the EEM. It has gone up about uh, 50% more than the S&P has during the same period of time. Nobody notices it. These are commodity-related countries, generally speaking. Uh, Russia has vastly beat the U.S. on the upside in the stock market over the last few years. They have an ETF for that called RSX. So um, nobody's noticing these events, but they're commodity-related. So as gold turned up first in February of 2016... Bonds topped in October, broke down on our work October of 2016, and are continuing down. 
meaning higher rates. Mm-hmm. Commodities in, in pieces have turned up. Oil's had a big up move from $26 to 63 over the last few years. Copper's gone from under 2 to well over 3, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We think the grains have now begun their explosion with the January and February action of soybeans, corn, and wheat. Uh, and we think that could be quite dramatic, 30 to 40% rise rapidly. Uh, just as a first shock effect. So I'm rattling off a lot of things that are happening in sequence here. Now, uh, the gold market's very interesting because one gold led the way up out of the hole. It was one of the first things to turn via, via our work, and that was in uh, early 2016 at a price of 1140 It's now about 1340 um, It's nestled below the last two years' highs for the last month or two. It's been nestled below the highs of the, of the prior two years, but not far below. But in contrast, most of the gold mining investors are very upset because the GDX and other ETFs of the gold miners are laying well below the rally highs of 2016 and going dormant. And so is the chart of silver. So if you overlay a GDX chart with a silver chart, do a monthly, for example, they look like the same market. So even though they're gold miners in the GDX, it looks like a silver chart. Mm-hmm. I can't explain why, uh, but it, it, they are very similar. But they're also both very ripe, according to our work, for the next leg up, which should be a, a nice jolt for both of them, where they catch up with gold and probably outperform gold. Uh, in contrast, of course, gold is near its recent highs, whereas these guys are laying in the weeds. They're not going down. They're just going sideways for yeah. well over a year now. Uh, so I'd be watching uh, silver right now, for example. It's about 45 cents short of a number that if it reaches during Q2, which is 18 trading days from now, that number's about above 17, uh, about 17.20. Uh, and I think uh, silver's in the 16.50, 60 right now. Uh, mm-hmm. But you get up to... But, uh, above 1720 by much during the second quarter, and I think it's going to launch. And I think it could suddenly jolt out of its sleep, and I think the GDX probably will do the same. So they're looking good. Uh, But we're getting a lot of trend change events over the last two years, and especially over the last uh, several quarters. The stock market developed indices we're talking about now instead of emerging. So we're talking about U.S., Japan, and Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, The February close was a bad close. February action did a lot of damage to quarterly momentum of most indices. There are a few that escaped it. One would be the NASDAQ 100, which, of course, is front end loaded with the FANG stocks, mm-hmm. you know, the, the right. five, okay, and the PNQI ETF, which is a good one to watch, which includes, all four, includes four of the five FANG stocks, front end loaded again. Those two particular market metrics we have our sights on, because when they break, we think it's all over. Uh, They're the leaders. I do think damage was done. I don't care about the rally. Quite often, tops are made this way, sore bottoms, where you don't just go after the top occurs. You go down, you come back up, you wander around, sometimes you make a new high even. Uh, And So far, that's not occurred, and most indices, particularly if you look at Europe, are way away from their highs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're don't even, they almost don't look like the U.S. markets. Uh, so I see the developed markets as in bad trouble with the leadership that should be focused on now, namely those, those five stocks, the FANG stocks and those indices that represent those stocks. Because uh, when they go, I think then the whole board goes. I don't necessarily think that the stock market is the best place to be, long side or short side. Uh, it's merely one asset category. 
and I suspect I can make more money long corn, wheat, and soybeans than I can short the S&P, even if the S&P does top and go down. Mm-hmm. So investors need to consider that fact that the menu out there that's available to investors today, which is international, and it's also not just futures, it's ETFs. So there's all kinds of vehicles to participate in all four asset categories, debt, foreign exchange, stocks, and commodities. And we think all of them <clears throat> are going to have big moves, uh, many of which are already underway. And we think these moves are along the lines of Stockman's view that we're coming to a coalescence of disasters here. Whereas in the past, when we have a, a mini crisis, it's isolated to the housing markets or it's isolated to the dot-com stocks. And we blame it on this, that, or the other market for the, for the collapse. When in fact, it's the causal factor is the manipulation of money and the manipulation of interest rates by central banks. We now think it's in the lap of the central banks and we think this is the crisis, multiple asset category crisis, that will put it clearly in their laps and I suspect, I think Stockman has even said this, that uh, when this, this situation ends several years from now, let's say, uh, there might not be any more central banks. Yeah. Well, that's right. He, there may be a different structure of some kind. We can only hope that it goes back to some sort of a free market well, uh, direction. Like gold, yes. Yeah, that, that would be the dream uh, for liberty, not just because I own gold, uh, own some gold and pro- propose owning gold and gold shares, not so that I get rich, but so that we're free. Because I yeah. think you and I both agree, Michael, that, uh, you know, when government gets involved with markets, they start to take away our freedom. People don't make the connection, but it certainly is there, I, I think. you. I, uh, it's yeah. uh, echoing a book I wrote in 1973 called The New Libertarianism, which I dealt with some of these issues. Exactly. I think that it would take this long for them to come to fruition, but they, it did. Uh, some, there's some events in Europe that are interesting, political events. Okay. And they're not so obvious. Uh, do we have some more time? Yeah, we do. We okay, have yeah. another three, four but minutes. Yeah. Them, you know, we all know about Brexit, and that surprised everybody. But let's forget about Brexit. The European Union and the ECB, which is backed by the the governing powers of Europe, has had the full throttle uh, nod from the governments of Europe, Merkel in particular, to go ahead and do all the nonsense they're doing. Zero interest rates, uh, support Italian bonds to the point where their yield is less than U.S., and all these sorts of things. Well, there's a rebellion, and it's not necessarily an intellectually driven rebellion like some. It's just basically a tantrum-type thing. <clears throat> but I've noticed it, and I've sort of chronologically done it. And in France, we had an election last year in April where the ruling Socialist Party came in fifth. Mm-hmm. Now, forget the fact that Macron won, and he's basically a, a, what you call a moderate statist uh, businessman type, but he, he's not orthodox. Uh, at least he's not. He, he indicates an end to the tradition of the dominant Socialist Parties in Europe. So he's something else. So he's pro-EU, don't get me wrong. Sure, but he he definitely he trounced the socialists, and right next to him was Le Pen. She did very well as well. Now then, in, in Austria in October, a young kid, thirty-five years old, a guy named Sebastian Kurz, became the prime minister of Austria. One of his chief, one of his prominent policy uh, opinions is that the ECB should stop the purchase of government bonds. Mm-hmm. So it's a directly anti-ECB guy who's prime minister of Austria. A little noticed by the press. Spain, uh, Catalonia voted for independence widely, uh, very popular, primarily because they're a wealthy 
uh, productive province of Spain, and they're tired of being sapped to finance the less productive parts of Spain. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, it was a pocketbook rebellion. Now, it's had some edge of violence to it. The Spanish state has has used a bit of force here and there, and they may use more. So that's it's an uncertain outcome. But it's definitely a rebellion uh, along those lines against the EU dominance. Uh, Germany now. Merkel has supposedly won a coalition, okay? <clears throat> She's created a coalition between her party, the CDU, which is generally considered the moderate party of, of uh, Germany. She's had to align with the Social Democrats. Social Democrats are like the opposite of the CDU, and yet she had to create a coalition with them in order to rule. So she has a very tentative coalition. I mean, she's walking a thin line, yet she's still the, quote, prime minister. Uh, if anybody goes back and looks at the history of that party, the Social Democrat Party, it goes back into the late 1800s, and basically its founding concepts came from Marx and Engels and people around them. Now, in 1925, that party uh, put up a new platform and tried to somewhat divorce itself from its history. But that's its roots. So, but that party was almost doomed, except for Merkel's need to have a party coalition. with, mm-hmm. And she chose the Social Democrats. That's like extreme uh, moderates with extreme left. And there's even a lot of young kids in the Social uh, Democratic Party again, which what used to be a dominant party in, in Germany, who don't like this arrangement with Merkel. You know, they want to they go the total socialist route. But, but that's a fragmented situation in Germany, and she's the dominant force in maintaining the ECB in their policy direction. And then in Italy last night, we had an election. Dominant parties were destroyed. Fragmented, almost non-ideological parties rose. Some of them had a few points, like they, you know, they were worried about the immigration and things of this sort or economic problems. But basically it was a, a tantrum set of parties that overthrew the dominant, again, the dominant parties of Italy took back seat. Uh, no. So we're seeing this here and there. They're not connected, but they are. Well, they are. I think they are. It's sort of a general theme, isn't it, Michael? We we do have to go now. We're out of time. But I I, I think, thank you for pointing that out, because I think, you know, governments can push the people so far, they can... They can hurt one group of people and try to help another only for so long before there's going to be a backlash. And I think we're seeing that throughout the Western world now, right? I think you're seeing it in the markets as well. Yeah, in the markets as well. Ultimately, (laughs) nature, yeah, ultimately, as you point out frequently, and I think your work uh, really points it out as well, is that ultimately, you know, Mother Nature prevails. And it's not Mm -hmm. something that uh, the politicians can, you know, can... um, can dominate or control. So I want to thank you very much for those insights, in addition to your usual insights about the markets. Uh, thanks for updating us on that, and we'll look to do it thank again you, next Dave. week, hopefully, Michael. All right, well, folks, don't go away. David Stockman is going to be with me. I pre-recorded David. You can listen to the entire message at jtaylormedia.com. Uh, it's a, a fairly lengthy interview with David Stockman, but I've taken a few minutes of, of some of the key points Uh, And you will listen to it in the next segment right after the commercial break. So don't go away. David Stockman will be with me right after the break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, one of the topics that I discussed with David Stockman in my February 23rd interview with him was how easily the American people are manipulated by statist propaganda. He agreed and then responded by noting how that propaganda ties into the unending desire for warfare spending by the military-industrial complex and how that is leading America down the path towards bankruptcy in the not-too-distant future, he fears. Here is what David had to say about propaganda and how it is leading Americans to mindlessly head down the path of financial destruction. You have just an enormous groupthink here yes. that's uh, incredible to behold. It does uh, function basically to the advantage of the deep state, the military industrial sure. surveillance complex. And what I wrote in this article, which you just mentioned, and it's, uh, it's, it's I, I, I don't like to beat my own drums here, but it's well worth going into because I not only exposed the sham of this indictment and the fact that, you know, these are 20-something-year-old unemployed people in St. Petersburg who were hired uh, you know, uh, crank away on keyboards 12 hours at a time sending out nonsense messages. Uh, but the, the, the thing is, the Democrats now have seized on that because they've been beside themselves trying to explain how the worst candidate in history mm-hmm. of a major party, Donald Trump, beat their candidate. Right. Okay? Right. And so they've now gone off the deep end with this hysteria about Russian meddling uh, because they're trying to explain the inexplicable, but that is really worrisome and dangerous because it means a carte blanche check for the military-industrial complex in dollars in the budget and in running room 
on policy. And yeah. so the one thing that I was hoping Trump could do, which was to go to Geneva, meet with Putin, and uh, you know have a rapprochement and say, we'll stay out of your neighborhood in the Ukraine if you stay out of Mexico, mm-hmm. which I'm sure he would agree to. And uh, Syria is none of our business, and if the government there wants you to help them stabilize uh, the place and get rid of the radical jihadists, more power to you. Sure. It would have changed the world, but my point is, we're going broke. That $1.2 trillion mm-hmm. of debt that I mentioned for the coming year is not the, happening at the bottom of a business cycle right. you know, downturn. It is happening 10 years into a recovery, Incredible. which is it, it, you know, 6% of GDP. It's incredible. I, I, you know, and sometimes when you've had the long experience that uh, some people have had, I've had, uh, you know, I was sitting there in early 1982 when we were in a deep recession. The deficit soared out of control, uh, you know, uh, inadvertently because, you know, the tax cut was too big, the defense increase got out of hand. But we were facing at the bottom of a recession a 6% of GDP uh, deficit, and we were terrified. Yeah, at the bottom. (laughs) Okay, at the bottom. Now, here they are at the top 10 years in, 104 months in, and they're uh, consciously, intentionally widening the deficit to 6% of GDP. And that is, uh, that's insane because a year or two or three years down the road, we're going to get a recession and then the revenue will dry up and the, the thing will soar uh, beyond uh, management. So, you know, the, the, this is dangerous, but uh, here's the reason, and that is, the Republicans are afraid to take on entitlements because they'll get demagogued by the Democrats. Right. The Democrats were afraid to really throw their bodies in front of this tax bill because they thought, you know, it would be popular uh, to give away, uh, you know, to lower sure. taxes. Uh, uh, and so they did nothing. And then both sides get together and say, you know, if you want to raise defense, by $80 billion a year, the Democrats said, that's fine with us, but we got to raise domestic spending by $70 billion, okay? <laughs> so you, you now have um, no constituency for fiscal rectitude. None. Exactly. It's gone. Yeah. And, and the only small force we had in Congress, the Freedom Caucus in the House, they ended up in this... Uh, deal they made to avoid the shutdown a couple weeks ago I said in one of the blogs I wrote they took them out behind the Capitol and shot them dead politically Okay, mm-hmm. because that's really what the Republican leadership, McConnell in the Senate and uh, Ryan who I think is the greatest fiscal uh, flake to come down the pike in a long time did in the House and so uh, now uh, you have this uh, fiscal situation at this late, late stage in the business cycle, uh, running uh, out of control, at the same time that you have a, you know, a posse of Keynesians in the Eccles building trying to reload their dry powder by shrinking the balance sheet and driving bond yields uh, straight uh, up. You know, it, it's a recipe. It's a recipe for the, uh, a conflagration uh, like we haven't uh, seen. 
I would like to remind you that uh, you can hear my entire interview with David Stockman on the podcast page at jtaylormedia.com. Well, we do have to go to commercial break now, but don't go away because Dan Oliver will be with me right after the break to pick up on some of David's concerns that he just raised and to discuss what that will mean for the dollar and gold as we move forward into the future. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Daniel Oliver. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver. Uh, he is the founder and managing director of Mermican Capital, and he's been with us on several occasions before, and he always has a lot of uh, very interesting and, I think, prescient things to say about the economy, uh, looking back in the rearview mirror uh, and then projecting forward. So thanks for joining me again, Daniel. It's really good to have you with me. Always happy to be here. Um, and I want to talk to you about your uh, February 14th article uh, titled Endgame. Uh, first of all, before we get started, is uh, for people that might want to take advantage of your insights into the market, you do put out occasionally some really important uh, essays, I would call them. And uh, is there a way that people can subscribe to that, Dan? Yeah, I think go to my website. It's a free subscription. I, I do a letter usually once a month for my investors, but I also yeah. send out to whoever wants to uh, to sign up for it. So it's, it's not always once a month, but it usually is. And again, as, as you point out, I, mean, I try to approach the markets through a historical perspective. I don't think human nature has changed. Mm-hmm. And so looking at what's happened over the last hundreds or even thousands of years can give you a pretty good sense of what where we're headed next. So that, that that's the whole methodology that I try to bring to these uh, to these markets. 
Yeah, and the website just for the benefit of our listeners because I don't have it in front of me right now. What so is the Myrmicon, Myrmicon.com. So M Y R M I K A N. Uh, but just just for your information, Myrmikis is the ancient word, a Greek word for ant. And I named the company after Herodotus stories of ants digging up gold in Persia. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and in 1996, some French explorers found marmots, which in ancient Persian were called mountain ants, uh, who burrow in a gold-bearing strata of sand, and the villagers take gold dust off their whiskers. So, in fact, Herodotus had it, <laughs> had it exactly right. So, <laughs> man, so it, it plays into, again, looking at, at history to, to know what, uh, what the future holds. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I didn't, uh, I've wondered about the name uh, Mermican capital. So now we know. Uh, thanks for telling us that. Um, Three years of ancient Greek gives you something, I guess. Yeah. Well, okay. Yes. Well, <laughs> all right. So well, the or- one of the original languages, which is very important if you understand the, the origin of, le- of words, you can, it, it can help you a lot, I think, in, in many Absolutely. ways. Well, anyway, anyway um, your February 14th piece titled Endgame um, that you sent out to your clients, you noted that you erroneously thought that 2015 would be the end of the current credit cycle uh, and that it would be triggered by problems starting in China. Can you walk us through your thought process that led you to believe 2015 would be a disastrous year for the markets and then say, and then perhaps tell us why uh, it hasn't happened yet? Yeah, sure. So, so there's the basic Austrian business cycle theory, which I adhere to, is that the banking system takes money. I mean, everyone knows this, right? You deposit money in the bank, they multiply, and they lend it out at term. And it's that maturity mismatch, which is the key, the key thing here. So your overnight funds get used to finance a, a, a 10-year or a 30-year capital item, right? That's what they do. Yeah. They're lending against these long-term assets. And so what happens is it's not consumer demand that demands all these long-term assets. It's just the banking funding. It is it's the interest rates decline, and that encourages long-term assets. And nowhere has this occurred in, in more of a rapid and, and virulent fashion than China. I mean, you, you know, they, they, you know, buildings are very long-term cash flow items. They build masses of them, roads, infrastructure projects, bridges. All these things are, are long-term capital items for which the consumer is not demanding. I mean, much of China is still in poverty. Even the middle class that is emerging there legitimately uh, doesn't necessarily need to have three apartments in these ghost cities. So it, it's just a huge misallocation of capital, and it always happens the same way. This is why in the crisis of 2008, we saw half-built condo buildings in Brooklyn, right? Or in 97 mm-hmm. in Asia, you saw a half-built airports. It's always the long-term big capital items. And so, and so China ha- has this enormous bubble. And so I, I've been thinking it still may happen. That, that that's where what happens is eventually, because there's not much consumer demand for these things, the cash flow starts to think, and they can't. Mm-hmm make their interest payments, the banks blow up, and then the, 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 you, you, the crisis is upon you. And so I still think that may happen. But what happened in 15, as you may recall, is that the Chinese stock market took a major, major uh, 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 decline. And, and this was in the hills of uh, stories coming out right before that saying that farmers were leaving their fields because they could make in the market in a month more than they'd make in a year or 10 years farming. Right. And, and again, this plays into the, whole, into the whole thesis that people stop being productive and doing productive things, start doing speculative, unproductive things. Mm-hmm. And so at, at the peak of that bubble, you get the big hiccup. And what, what, I, what I thought was going to happen, which still might happen again, is that when China blows up, they, they consume roughly a third of many, many uh, important commodities. And so when you're in the commodity business, you know, 
a small decline in demand can result in a huge drop in price because sure. it's hard to turn a mine off. And, and, and those themselves are enormously capital-intensive businesses. And so what happens is uh, commodity projects are blowing up. And then again, the banks that funded those projects, not necessarily funded projects in China, but funded projects that feed into China, they start blowing up and they lose their depositors money. And that requires uh, central banks to run in and bail them out. So, so there was this a, a chain reaction which uh, began to happen. It, I mean, it, it began to happen. Our, the, the stock market here dropped 13% in a month, and combined mm-hmm. prices did collapse. Uh, and and what happened was, and, and this is in the, in, in the letter I wrote, is that in the 19th century that would have been it. Uh, yeah. But in the 20th century, what what they've done is because they've abandoned the gold standard, the bureaucrats can run in. And, and create more credit and bail the situation out. This is what they did, by the way, three times in the 20s. They did three rounds of QE in the 1920s, which led to the Great Depression. And they've done the QE in our current time. When they add credit, when they bail the banks out, that works, quote unquote. It does work. It, it can stop yeah. the panic. But what it does is it encourages even more overcapacity to come online. It prevents the overcapacity from liquidating, and it makes it worse. So you can always, yes, you can always solve a credit crisis with more credit, but all you do is delay the liquidation and make it make it much worse. And that's basically what's happened. So the, the Chinese, if you look at the charts, the amount of credit creation that they that, that the authorities in China you know stuffed down the, the economy, stuffed into the banks, is simply enormous and and you know, to have, you know unbelievable proportions. And, and they know it is. And so the, all the news coming out of China the last six months year has been the Chinese government trying to figure out how they can uh, damp down this credit creation and, and not create a crash. And of course, this is impossible. This is you know, Hayek called it riding a tiger, right? The tiger right? faster, and and either you you hang on, uh, or or uh, and it goes faster and faster. Eventually, you 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 and so that that's where the Chinese are now. Well, you're looking at history, Dan. You know, you're uh, I'm 70 years old. You're quite a bit younger than I am. Uh, but, you know, people my age, we don't remember any kind of really dire, we, we came really close, 2008, 2009, we had some, you know, we had uh, the, the dot-com debacle, then, of course, the housing thing we had before that, 1987, which I was a young man, I remember very well. But each and every time the central bank comes in and they keep this from, you know, from completely unwinding, and so people really have the sense that that the central banks are still our savior they still can fix things. You're able to look at through the rearview mirror into history and and draw the the conclusions that ultimately this thing isn't going to continue on. But what do you say to people to convince them? I mean, how can you convince them that this is pathological, that it cannot go on forever? It's very difficult because, again, as as you point out, most people's experiences uh, have been shaped in the last. Since 1980, the last, the, the end of the last credit crisis, uh, because the 70s was a credit crisis. We resolved the credit through inflation instead of deflation in the 30s, but it, it, that's what it was. And since then, markets have only gone up, and really on a nominal basis, markets have been going up since, since 1973. And so yeah. you have a whole generation of people just program that markets always go up, and as long as you hang on to the long term, right, in that Siegel's book, you just stocks to the long term, you'll, you'll be fine. And again, history just simply doesn't support this. What, what, what has changed? Again, is the ability of the authorities to push this, push this uh, uh, story longer and, and, and taller. The, the, the whole, the whole intellectual uh, economic movement in the after the Great Depression was how to prevent the banks from liquidating. And what they, what they concluded erroneously was that what had caused it was all the depositors taking their money out, and that that forced the, 
the banking system go in reverse, right? So liquidating assets and, and to pay the deposit out. So the solution was don't let them do that, right? We'll, we'll, we'll cancel the gold standard so no one can take their gold out. And if they just want paper dollars, well, guess what? We can just print them up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So in other words, they looked at, the, at a symptom and said, hey, it was the gold outflows that caused the crisis. And, and, and that is true in a way. The gold outflows did force the banks to liquidate. That's not untrue. But what they're missing is that what really caused the crisis in, in, in a broader sense was the overcapacity that had been built. In, in Great Depression, it was World War I that had built all these things that never liquidated in the 20s because they supported them. In, in our age, it wasn't a war. It was just the Federal Reserve protecting the bank system that, sh- that pushes rates below where they should be and encourages all those malinvestments. So it's the same story, different origins. But but the point is that that is what makes the, the system liquidated. It's not, it's not the banks losing deposits. That's a symptom. It, it, it's this overcapacity. And you look around, I live in New York City, and everywhere I look, you see big, huge towers going up in every single mm-hmm. neighborhood. I mean, uh, unbelievable numbers of them, even while uh, uh, apartment sales and rents are falling. I mean, it's absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. But but if you have zero interest rates, if, you're, if your cost of capital is zero, you can build anything. In fact, what, what I find stunning is that Bernanke, uh, who's a blogger now at the Hoover Institute, uh, his new job, he, he blogged that he, he had been taught by... Uh, in 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 studies by uh, I can't remember his name Larry Summers' uncle at MIT that at at zero percent interest rates you can justify any investment so it makes sense to flatten the Rocky Mountains uh, to save on your <laughs> gas price for trucks right because because the capital cost is, is finite and then you have an infinity to make out back your cash flows and then the point is just a, an absurd argument to show how 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 unnatural zero percent interests are and and that's what Bernanke said, and he's the guy who drove races zero to save the system. And the, the point is, again, it did save the system, but it made the imbalances worse, and it makes that the ultimate revolution, uh, resolution of this crisis is going to be worse. And again, I think that we were almost there on 15. The, the China ran into the day, but they've made things worse. And now the next time this system hiccups, they'll take that much more power to, uh, to keep it from blowing up. I'm wondering uh, the... The Chinese uh, leader there has consolidated his power. He has an endless regime, the way it looks. Uh, the, the laws have been set up, I, I suppose, getting prepared for some very difficult times ahead through totalitarian rule, I guess, to try to. Well, so, take well, care so of are we, Jay. I mean, the point is, yeah. in the 30s, it was you can't pretend your gold out. And what they're all talking about now, Kenneth Rogoff and all these people, is that right. cash is only used by criminals and terrorists. So the, the right. next step is you can't take your cash out. And right. it's the same thing. It's, it's, do, it's done, done to solve a symptom, but it won't solve the underlying problem. Right. The underlying symptom, uh, the underlying problem, uh, too much credit, uh, malinvestment, no cash right. flow to service the debt. Right. And so banks start to lose money. Uh, depositors run away from it were it not for FDIC, with or without a gold exactly. standard. And so that's not the real problem. Well, David Stockman just uh, noted, uh, in, at least when I talked to him recently, he, he talked about a $1.8 trillion funding that the Treasury is going to have to come up with. There's a $1.2 trillion deficit, as you uh, projected for the next fiscal year, as you noted in your article. And then he says that, the, that he's convinced that the Fed's going to raise interest rates four times this year. He's looking at another $600 billion that will be pulled out of the system uh, by the uh, by the Fed if, if, of course, things don't crash before then. Um, and, of course, that $1.2 trillion deficit is based on an assumption of GDP of 4.1%, which is pretty hefty compared to what we've had in recent times. I'm sure the, the Trump people, the Republicans, are suggesting that's going to happen because of the tax breaks. But now we have, of course, tariffs that are being proposed. Uh, I mean, my question for you is, where where do you see this playing out? I mean, can we, can, 
it's 1.8 trillion or say 1.2 trillion is um, 6% of GDP and David notes that you know when he was in Washington uh, in the Reagan administration they were having they were having conniption fits over that at the bottom of the cycle and here we are at the top of the cycle proposing a 6% deficit to GDP uh, where's the money going to come from to buy the treasuries that's going to be required well, 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 I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the point, is that tr- trying to mimic what Reagan did at the bottom of the credit cycle, when rates were over 20%, when the total GDP ratio of private and public debt was less than 150% of GDP, and applying it to today, when rates are still effectively zero or near zero, and, and the, uh, the, the reported uh, debt-to-GDP ratio is up in, up in the 400% area, and, of course, the reality, that's private and public. Uh, the reality is, it's probably much, much higher than that if you if you uh, add the government obligation. So it's 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 completely two different uh, uh, t- t- times to to think about. But but the point again is that when the uh, I mean I'm, I'm all for tax cuts, of course, because government mm-hmm. is pernicious, and you, you, if you defund it, it's a good thing. But when you when you cut the taxes and you increase the spending, right? That's the other side of it. Is that yeah. uh, tr- Trump's three hundred billion dollar uh, uh, boondoggle next two years, which which it was only exceeded by Obama's stimulus, means you're going to have a huge deficit. And so here we're going to have the the Treasury uh, uh, panically going to be issuing these things. The Fed says they're selling theirs too, so that's additional. So or they're not rolling those over, which is affected the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then China and Japan are buying them because their surpluses are are, are in trouble. So the point is, who's going to buy these things? And the answer yeah. is nobody. I mean, not nobody, but the point is that the, the price will go down. That sends rates up. And, and, and this is why I put my, in my missive that you know, I'm not at all clear anymore that the crisis is going to start in China because what's happening now is that the U.S. interest rate structure is going to, is going to head a lot higher. I mean, it, you know, they teach you in business school that every single financial asset on the planet is priced on a spread to the treasury bond yield. You look at the yield of the private right. asset, you compare the treasury, and that's the spread, and that's how you price these things. So as the treasury bond uh, a rate goes up. It's going to it's going to make the required return for every private investment also get higher. When, and it just it's just a mathematical function. If your return goes up, your price goes down. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's hard to imagine how this scenario isn't going to result in a sharply lower market. And and I think you know David Stockman is right about this. Is that don't forget these guys hate Trump, and if they can raise rates for times and, and make the market blow up on his watch so much the better. I, I do wonder, and this isn't in the letter, but I, I have wondered more of this since I wrote that, which is that, I, you know, when you have such a huge stimulus in the economy, uh, you generally do get a big boost out of it. And we're so close to the midterm elections. Uh, Trump's population, popularity is rising. And it's certainly possible that he squeaks through the midterms before anything bad happens simply because of the, the juicy economies in the gap. But so, that, that may not necessarily happen. And sooner or later, these enormous deficits we've been running, uh, which haven't really mattered for 35 years, which is why we're ignoring them, but they haven't mattered in the context of, of falling rates. But if, if, if the deficit keeps widening in a rising rate environment, that's entirely different. And again, as I point in the paper, as, as people talk about, but the numbers are absolutely terrifying. The, the, Raw number of dollars required to pay the interest on the debt has been going up, even though rates have been falling because of the enormous increase in amount of debt. Well, yeah. if you start increasing the rates as well as the debt, that number explodes higher. And, and then what you have to do is you have to issue more treasury bonds to raise more money to, just to pay the interest. 
And then those treasury bonds have interest. So, so the point is you get involved very fast in an exponential increase of these things. And, yeah. and it won't take long for the market to project what's happening and price them accordingly. And once you project an exponential increase, the price becomes very, very low. Yeah, and I, I, gonna, rates very very high, I mean, and, and and that's kind of catastrophic to our economic system. For sure, and markets are going to discount that looking forward. I would think too, as they right. start to perceive that. I wonder if some of that uh, discounting hasn't already started to take place. Well, you know, one of the things you noted in your article was uh, the correlation between gold and interest rates. Uh, in the past, in the 70s, but it's gone the opposite way more recently. Um, there, I, I, you know, most people now are thinking, well. You know, with rising rates, we're probably going to see a stronger dollar, and we're going to see a weaker gold price. But you address that issue, and you have some different thoughts about what might happen in the future regarding those those relationships. Yeah, so something I talk about a lot, that is the, the standard Wall Street analysis is that as rates go up, uh, uh, gold has no cash flow. So when rates go up, you, on the marginal gold holder sells the gold to buy the higher-yielding asset, and so therefore gold goes down. And similarly, uh, as rates go up, the marginal international investor wants to buy a bond at a higher yield, so he's got to buy dollars first to do that, so it strengthens the dollar. That, that, that's the conventional wisdom. And, and to me, it's exactly backwards, and, and, and the 70s shows this. If you plot a, a chart of the nominal interest rate against the gold price in the 70s, it's a perfect match, i.e., as rates went up, gold went up, or, or the dollar went down. And the reason for this, in my view, is that, to me, there's nothing spooky about the Federal Reserve, and it doesn't really matter to me how many dollars there are. What matters to me is what backs them. If the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve were only issuing dollars uh, and only taking gold against us, so each dollar was backed by 100% gold, it wouldn't matter how many dollars there are because yeah. each one would be, would be backed by gold. And so if we think about how the Fed actually works, they issue dollars against assets, against bonds, against treasury bonds. And as rates go up, bonds go down in value. And so if you have a balance sheet and the assets are falling in value, the liabilities are going to fall in value too. And that's what happened in the 70s. Rates went up, the bonds went down, the dollar went down, gold went up. Uh, I, my, my theory and why that went into reverse the last six years is because when you have a system like we have now where you have $4 trillion of base money and $90 trillion of credit money, of, of debt to nominate in that money, how do you pay back the $90 trillion with the four trillion, how do you even make the interest payments? Yeah. And so the dollar has been in a huge short squeeze, especially the euro dollar market when you have a a, a a non-American borrower of U.S. dollars and they can't go to the Fed, they can't get dollars, they've got to pay them back. Um, and as the rate d- goes up, what happens is you need to hold more dollars because your interest payments go up and you need to have a reserve of dollars to pay your interest payments. If you don't pay your interest payments, you default in your debt, you lose your collateral. So no one wants to do that. And so. As the rate goes up, the dollar has strengthened, it, i.e. it did the reverse of what it did in the 70s. And what I've been writing for the last eight years is that at some point, that dynamic, that short squeeze of dollars will break. And when it does, the dollar will flip back to the orientation it had in the 70s where it becomes uh, correlated with interest rates instead of being anti-correlated. And if you look at the, the, the chart of gold and rates over the last few months, it looks to me like that's starting to happen. It's too early to say it is happening, but it looks like it's starting to happen. And to me, that's a, a huge, huge shift because what it would signal when it happens is that the world is shifting from the deflation environment it's been in with this, this short squeeze of the dollar has been in for the last at least six, maybe 10 years, into more of an inflation environment where rates start to undermine the, 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 the value of the Fed's assets. And, and, and that, to me, again, starts this positive feedback loop we saw in the 70s where as rates go up, the dollar sinks, uh, and, and, and that makes you know, inflation kicks up. Then you want more interest rates to protect yourself against inflation, and then 
uh, and re repeat. And so that, that's when you really get the Federal Reserve's balance sheet destroyed and, and gold up in, in the stratosphere. And, and by the way, if you look at the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve going back to 1704, you, you put those things together, uh, the, the market has required a backing of about one-third uh, for the for the dominant central bank's liabilities in in gold, and that mm -hmm. number comes around six thousand dollars an ounce. So I mean, I you know, I think six dollars six six thousand dollars an ounce in gold is not some pie in the sky crazy yeah. projection. That, that all that would do is put gold to back the average of where it's been for three hundred years, and during most of that time, Jay, the assets that these banks held were short-term commercial bills and yeah. and, and ninety-day government bonds. Well, now they own. 10 and 30 year government bonds. It's a very different thing. So I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think 6,000 is a fair number. I think it's got to get to at least eight or 10,000 to balance the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And that is what a full credit liquidation looks like. That's what happened in 1980. That's what's going to happen today. And my guess is once the process starts, because it's a self-iterating process, it will, it will play out very, very quickly. All right. Well, let's look at this now. If we go back to the late to the seventies, it was Paul Volcker came in to, uh, you know, to keep gold out of the picture. He uh, promised people, gave people, huge rates of interest on treasuries of so twelve, fourteen percent or so. My first mortgage was a seventeen and a half percent mortgage uh, back in nineteen eighty one, I believe it was, and um, you know, so they saved, quote unquote, saved the system at that point and kept gold from entering, and gold price was going up. And the Volcker's. Uh, when he slammed on the brakes of money creation, uh, you know, gold was knocked in the teeth and it fell from its $850 price level down to the 200s ultimately and before it finally, you know, rallied again and we're in another bull market now. But um, let's think through this. Would the Fed, if we start having a real serious inflationary problem, you know, the Fed is likely to try to reimpose and maybe that's what they're doing now, trying to reimpose stricter monetary conditions, uh, sending rates up, sending you know the economy into a tailspin. Uh, is that when the Fed and the central banking may find some real problems uh, for their survival? Yeah, I mean, I think, but, but by the way, you, I think you were at the dinner that the CMR had with Paul Volcker, and he got up yes, I was. three uh -huh. years ago, and he, said, and he said gold was the enemy. <laughs> he was Fed chairman, and the reason is because yes. he said gold was going up, it signaled to him that the, the system was rejecting the dollar, and when gold went down, it was the opposite. So I, I thought it was a very interesting comment from, from a, a Fed, a Fed you know, the, the famous Fed governor, but in, in ch chairman. Hey guys, yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, the, the Fed's knee-jerk reaction when inflation kicks up is going to be to increase uh, rates. In fact, I, I was uh, reviewing some of the Federal Reserve minutes from the 70s when they, when they were doing the same dynamic. They were raising rates and mm -hmm. they were saying in the minutes, hey, this is going to strengthen the dollar. And the opposite happened right? yeah. because, because they were devaluing the bonds. Now, as those bonds rolled off and they replaced with new high-yielding ones, that balance sheet became – uh, solid again and again. It was 100% backed by gold when gold crossed a, uh, 550. It, and, and so they did save the system. But the question is, you know, what would happen in today's world with the rates of 20%? I mean, it would be very little, little left standing. Certainly not the government. Certainly yeah. not in the banks. Certainly not, you know, any, any other structures that I'm aware of can withstand that kind of economic stress test. And so they simply don't have that option unless it's in conjunction with a massive devaluation of the dollar, in other words, you you can pay twenty percent on your on your dollar balances if the dollar has declined by in value by eighty percent or some number like that. Mm -hmm. So, so the only way out becomes uh, a, a, a a huge devaluation of the dollar. And the question: How do they do it? Do, do they go buy a whole bunch of more government bonds and the government starts spending all the stimulus? Is that how they do it? 
Do they do a, a sudden, like, you know, weekend revaluation? Or they simply revaluate against some asset, against gold, some other thing? It, it's, it's hard to say. My guess is they don't know. I mean, these are academics. They have their models. Their models simply don't tell them what's going to happen. So they'll be reactive, not proactive. And at some point, when the world's about to end, they'll do something dramatic. And, uh, and we'll have to see what it is. But whatever it is, it's going to be good for gold and bad for the dollar. All right. We'll have to leave it go with that, Dan. Um, we're, we're really out of time. I want to thank you very much. Um, clearly, you don't want to own dollars in that circumstance. So that's for sure. Uh, gold, uh, almost in any environment, long term, it holds its purchasing power. We know what happens to fiat currencies. They all go the way of history, the dustbin of history. Well, thank you, Dan, for being with us. And uh, really enjoyed that. Hope to have you back again sometime soon. Uh, that is all the time we have this week, folks. Next week, David Jensen will be with me um, to talk about a topic. I don't think it's nearly enough attention these days. And that is the impending demise of the petrodollar and what that may mean for gold and other markets. So uh, you'll want to be with us next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.